Hello and a very warm welcome to this edition of the Africa Legal Podcast. And I'm really thrilled to be joined today by a previous contributing author to Africa Legal, this being Lynette Etemesi. Lynette is a lawyer by profession, and she holds a bachelor's in laws and a master's degree in international business law. She is also currently pursuing her second master's degree in global public policy at the SOAS University in London. Additionally, Lynette is an articulate French speaker and translator. She is in the public policy and governance space, but is extremely passionate about mental health advocacy, which is how we met. She is the founder of an initiative called the Mental Health Wellness Project Africa, whose core mandate is to create mental health awareness, advocate for favourable mental health policies and legislation, and provide a trauma-informed approach on mental health. She currently sits at the Decriminalisation of Suicide Committee at the Kenya National Commission on Human Rights, which seeks to repeal the provision of criminalisation of attempted suicide in the Penal Code. She is also a distinguished writer with various articles on mental health and trauma published in Kenya's Business Daily and, as I've mentioned, our very own Africa Legal. So, Lynn, an absolutely warm welcome to the podcast today. Thank you very much, Tom. I'm really, really grateful for Africa Legal having me on this podcast and looking forward to extremely interesting discussions and fruitful ones as well. Thank you very much. How wonderful. Well, let's let's dive right in. Let's start with a relatively broad question, and I'm sure there's many facets to it, but why is the mental health agenda so important to you? Uh, and how has this importance and this passion really come about? Um, well, thank you very much, uh, Tom, for that question. It's, it's a very um, broad, rather broad um, description as to why I'm very interested in mental health. And for starters, I'll start with my time at high school. Uh, joining high school here in Kenya, the Kenyan system, uh, most of the high schools actually um, stipulate that most of them actually are in boarding. So you move from your day school, which is your primary or your formative years, and then you go to your boarding school, which is mostly the high school. And when I started out, when I was in high school, I was extremely bullied. I was very tiny. So I was really, really bullied. Actually, on the first day I reported to school, I remember I was bullied by uh, people in Form 3 and Form 4 who happened to be the senior classes then. And um, it really took a toll on me. And also having a very strict dad who felt that... Um, the whole issue of you need to harden up and you can't and when you're being in school you can't be bullied you also need to step up for yourself but unfortunately i was very timid and i carried that along um for quite some time so of course you kept on telling your parents you need to move schools because they don't understand how it's taking an effect on you uh, i started um performing poorly in school my grades were not that great so i more or less struggled to pick myself up Fast forward to that, it was actually, I'd say I dealt with that issue by myself and it's a space I really wouldn't want anybody to be in. Fast forward it to um, law school. Of course, when you're in law school, there's that pressure that you need to perform and then moving on, you get into really um, involving work environments. And I remember one of the law firms I worked for here in Kenya, they call them the Ivy League firms, where there's so much to do, so much competition. And I remember I burnt out and I got depressed because 
coming in to start working in the law firm before when I was doing my pupillage, which is a program you do before you're admitted to the bar, I was not in the I was not in the corporate field. I was more or less working in the non-governmental side. So coming into a law firm and finding it to be too busy and too hectic and nobody has time for you and you have to meet deadlines and there's so much to do. So I fell into lots of depression and also of course sometimes you find yourself in abusive relationships it just channels out and you you go through that and i ended up finding or being diagnosed with severe anxiety and depression so from that that's how my journey began to advocate for issues around mental health because i've been through it myself and i wouldn't want to people to be in such a space where they are going through such a difficult situation and they can't seek help because it's 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 a very tough space for you to be in yes i i, I believe I've, I've i've talked a bit too much on my uh, on on why it's important but that's the story no no lynn i i think the personal component to your interest is is absolutely vital and you know passions born out of personal experience are obviously and most often some of the the they drive some of the strongest convictions and you know i i myself um you know have have sad memories of, of high school and uh you know of bullying and um of, of difficulty fitting in and adjusting and um something that sticks out to me is you know you're talking about how there were certain people that said, you know, you have to toughen up and you have to get on with it. And it reminds me that just because there are situations that impact many, many people, whether it's entering the law or whether it's high school, it, it, just because a lot of people experience it, it doesn't mean it's right. It doesn't mean that it has to be that way. It shouldn't be for the individuals to have to harden up or toughen up or find a solution there does need to be systemic change in many, many places and a pushing of the solution onto those individuals who are suffering does nothing to actually solve the problem in the long term. So I think the more people hear of these personal stories and the more they can feel that they're not alone, the more they can feel that there should be change, the better. You know, Lynn, we've, we've touched upon your entry into the legal profession as a, a one filled with with stress and overwork and burnout and, you know, resulting in a diagnosis of, of, of severe anxiety. But where is the legal profession coming short with regard to mental well-being currently? Where is this most starkly reflected and in need of urgent redress? Thank you very much, uh, Tom. And I am so glad you've actually uh, brought up this question because um, a lot of times I when I engage with fellow lawyers and sometimes they really, really don't seem to see a problem with our system because we are so used to uh, being in high pressure environments that it's a norm for us, but it's absolutely not normal. And one of the reasons I feel that it's, 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 there's so much pressure is that our field of work is more or less, it's all about giving back and we don't get anything much in return. And whatever it is that we do, it, it's measured by results. So people do not see the work in progress or rather what we do to be able to achieve particular results. So our environment or rather the legal environment, the pressure starts from once we join law school because 
first of all, when you're in high school or when you're in senior high school, there's this pressure where you have to get high grades for you to join law school. Once you get into law school, there's also a lot of pressure where you have to read and study for you to be able to stay on. You need to actually get good grades for you to graduate. And of course, you move on to now in Kenya, the system, there's a postgraduate, and I believe it's everywhere where you have to have the bar exam, which is equally stressful because I'll give my personal experience. I remember when I was sitting for the bar exams as I was studying, I think I'd get like two or three hours of sleep every day because you believe that you cannot fail those bar exams um, because repeating them is very taxing. So you have to struggle and stay up. So that pressure carries on. And then you get into um, the internship phase or the pupillage phase where you have um, seniors who, of course, because they've gone through all this high pressure, then, of course, they have no other way of, of, of teaching somebody because they're like, targets have to be met. So for you to meet your targets, you have to work long hours. For you to work long hours, you don't have um, work-life balance. So of course, you will crash out and you will burn out. So you have that as one of the issues in terms of the legal profession. It starts right from when we get into law school all the way to when we work. It's extremely hectic. And what happens is that the adversarial nature of our profession means that we have high levels of stress and depression. And for us to to show it is seen as a sign of weakness. So that's why you see a lot of lawyers or a lot of legal students end to delve into drinking because or into other stress relieving um, mechanisms that are not healthy. And there's a there's a report by Beaton Consulting that says that at least 58% of lawyers are actually high-functional alcoholics because most of them tend to release their stress by maybe indulging in a substance or in an unhealthy habit. So that already in its sense is one of the reasons why we really have an issue of mental health because opening up is, is usually seen as a sign of weakness in this noble profession of ours. And you mentioned a question on how do we address the situation or how do we how do we get to get that uh, redress? So the first thing would be training lot senior management. That is a very important thing because law firms and organizations, they need to put in place um, training programs on mental health for management or partners on issues around mental health. Because some of these partners, of course, they, there's, there's, there's a reputation of the firm to protect. There's the fact that um, your firm is seen um, to be doing extremely well. So of course, you tend to overwork your employees to the detriment of their mental health. So they need to be trained and told there's this thing that is called poor mental health, that as a result of overworking them, your employees can go through depression or stress or high levels of anxiety. So they need to be trained because they also need to realize that, especially I've seen this, especially in in, 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 in my country, I don't know if it's applicable in um, various law firms, I've seen there's that aspect where if I went through this, then you certainly have to go through this. It's 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 like a, a line of passage. So if I went through a place where there was high pressure, then indeed the people who come after me have to go through that. I don't know if, if, if that's the yeah, case. A hundred percent. 
No, 100%. There's very much a mentality of if if I survived it, you have to survive it too. Mm-hmm. And it's one of the most unhelpful attitudes to have. Um, you know, I feel like we should be, even if you had to climb a rope to get where you are, lower a ladder when you get to the top. There is there is no reason for it. And and I, I believe um, people need to understand that there's not everybody, you can't have a one-size-fits-all solution because not everyone is as resilient as you are. There's some people who break easily and there's some who can be able to withstand that kind of pressure. So I feel that it's very important to train especially people, all management or senior management, because these are people who've been in, in practice for years. And them being in practice for years, of course, some of these things, I believe that's emerging best practices, things that were not there when they were starting out, especially right now, there's a lot of noise around mental health on social media or Twitter or Instagram. Everybody's talking about mental health. So it's important for you, to, for them to get in line and understand what mental health is all about for purposes of assisting their staff so it would be very important that is one of the issues the second one would be creating a work-life balance because and i think this is very important especially for for lawyers i think we we, we do not have that part where we have work-life balance because our job we are like doctors if somebody calls you in the middle of the night and tells you they have a problem you have no option but to get up and you know and work and and unfortunately our profession is known as the noble profession which is all about helping people so if somebody calls you and they're distressed then you have to assist but also that boils down back to the office sometimes we put in a lot of crazy hours because if you find there's some organizations or firms that have billable hours or crazy timesheets that you have to fill in and you have to meet your billable hours. Um, sometimes you find yourself working overboard. I'll, I'll give an example of myself. When I was in the previous law firm, I'd be in the office by 7 a.m. And the earliest I'd leave the office is 9 p.m. because the work is crazy and you cannot afford to leave work pending because the next day your senior or the partner will come and ask and if they don't find that work done they'll lash out so what happens is that you miss the most important aspects in your life if you have kids you can't tuck them in or put them to bed because you get home past hours and uh Sometimes you have to work through weekends. And I remember where we were, we used, you were given a laptop and a phone. So you'd have to, it's configured with office settings plus your phone. So you have to be working 24-7. Even if somebody sends out an email at on Sunday at 4 p.m. when you're out with your family for a picnic, you will still see it because you have no excuse. If it's not on your email, it's on your phone. So that alone just you know you don't tend to interact with people get to hear them out get to exchange ideas so you bottle up all this pressure and keep it to yourself and yet you can you don't have time to interact with with family and friends which is extremely important for your well-being and your mental well-being i don't know if that was your experience storm i um especially whether you've been working in a firm i i don't know well, look, I've had the privilege of, of having been on the periphery of the profession without having to actually dive in. I, I uh, studied law and then entered uh, legal media, actually, uh, before doing my post-qualification. So I did a degree which allowed you to actually do a year 
um, on placement. Um, and I was lucky enough to work at some wonderful organizations during that time. But um, I quickly realized that actually breaking my life into six minute units and billing time and timesheets wasn't for me. Um, and I had the luxury of realizing that very, very early in my career, pre-qualification, and I actually managed to find wonderful jobs uh, with the degree itself. Uh, but, you know, I've spent the last last more than a decade being able to look into law firms. And I turn this question back onto you slightly. I, I believe there is a pyramid scheme that props up law firms traditionally. Now, this pyramid scheme has been found lacking in the US and the UK in, in particular, and there has been a backdraft onto it. Um, you know, there has been resistance to it. And this is the idea that as long as you dangle the carrot of partnership in front of the, 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 the employees, you know, you start as a trainee or a pupil and they dangle the carrot of an associate position. When you're an associate, you're getting worked into the ground. They dangle the carrot of senior associate, then managing associate, and then salary partner, and then finally equity partner. You know, you're 40 years old. You've got none of your own hair left. You're absolutely burnt to a nub. You have no friends and no social life, and you haven't tucked your kids in for 20 years, but you finally made partner. I mean, does this ring true to you? And why, why is this pyramid scheme still, still functioning? Why are young East Africans still queuing up to enter the profession or have things or are things changing so dramatically that this scheme is actually no longer factually accurate? Um, and, and I totally, you know, when you when you say that, I was actually laughing because I, I totally agree with, with you on this. And, and I usually have conversation with my lawyer friends. And, and of course, it almost gets into a fist fight because they are wired to thinking that um, there's this whole position of pupil to associate to senior associate to partner to managing partner and it looks rosy because people are looking at they're not really looking at the career satisfaction rather but they're looking at what's in for me when I make partner because when you look at who a partner entails or how partners are in Kenya, there's some sort of a pedigree, how they how they live, nice houses, nice cars, um, good networks. For them, that's what they live for. But I always ask them, once you get to that path, are you satisfied by the time you get to partner? Or once you get to partner, what next? Because as soon as you get to partner, um, think about it i think i believe that's the highest level you can attain in terms of 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 being in the legal uh profession not that i'm here to spite anybody but i feel like there is so much there's so many emerging spaces in 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 the legal fraternity that really requires so much attention you can have people delving into the digital space without having to go through the usual law firm you can go into human rights you can go into um, commercial and you can go into arbitration there's so much to do but i believe what's happening is that people tend to find the satisfaction in the material things but by the time you're getting there after you've achieved what you've achieved you're an empty person you are uh, super depressed because of the kind of work that you've done that has not made you um 
made you lose your social life so already you've lost so much what's in it for you so all right and your mental health at that point in time you cannot not convince me and tell me that you're okay at that particular point in time so i feel like um this particular a thing or rather this particular formula doesn't work so i believe it's time for us to actually go back to the table and regroup because what what's happening is we're churning out a lot of depressed and fatigued and and lawyers who are anxious because there's so many people who reach out to me and tell me sometimes i go to work and i have so much to do and there's so much pressure but because i want to make it to abcd i have to deal with the panic attacks i have to deal with the stress i have to deal with the anxiety i have to deal with the depression i feel like that this formula isn't working at all and you're very right tom here's the problem it is working but it's working for the institutions rather than for the 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 individuals now maintaining the status quo is obviously in the interest of 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 certain institutions um change is always difficult but change really does have to come at a at a certain point and what i'd say to people that are on this journey on this trainee associate senior associate journey is that there is nothing intrinsically wrong with it okay lynn and i aren't here to bash what has apparently worked for so long but there are ways of approaching it there are blended approaches to these careers becoming pigeonholed into a obsessive uh, uh, focus on a certain component or area of law may well benefit your firm, but it's in the short term, but it's not actually gonna benefit the, sh the, the, the firm, you, or the demographic which law firms will point to time and time and time again to justify these uh, rather barbaric working conditions, which is the client. The client, the client, the client. Well, you know, the client demands that we're on 24-7. The client demands that this work is completed at this certain time. The client demands that we have, uh, you know, these documents um, reviewed within a 12-hour window. Actually, you know what more and more clients want is they want lawyers who have enough brain power and enough emotional stability and energy to bounce ideas off in a meeting or to actually think of different approaches to to novel ideas or lawyers who have had the time to embrace a new piece of technology which will help with their business problems so it is a journey no one's going to smash this uh, this hamster wheel overnight but i just feel like the, heart, uh, the, the that that you know reliance upon justifying the situations through the client is a tired and actually an erroneous um, way to go about things where in actuality the modern client in particular the young african entrepreneur for example wants lawyers that have creativity and ingenuity and stability um, and some personality and you'll only get that if if you don't crush them via these pyramid scheme-esque programs that have seemed to be the status quo for so long. So a rant over there, Lynn, but um, I'm interested, does, does that resonate with you too? Oh yeah, it does. And and it really does. And I believe that is one of the reasons why I actually left um, the practicing environment because I felt like it was extremely toxic to that extent because there's so much pressure 
and it, it really affects your mental health. So that's why I ended up going into a space because I'll give you a story, Tom. When I left my law firm, I sat, actually was in a meeting and I, I was like, Lord goodness, is this the kind of environment that I want to work for? Like it had gotten to a point I'd wake up in the morning and I'm like, my goodness, do I really want to go to work today? No, I don't. But I push myself out of bed and get to work and, you know, and then one day we're seated in a meeting and I'm like, this is not really the kind of life I want to live. And, and it's really taken a toll because I was immediately had seen a doctor and I'd been diagnosed with depression and anxiety. And I'm like, this is not good for me because I feel depressed. I'd go to the bathroom and have panic attacks. And I was like, this is not for me. So I, I ended up, I left actually, please. Um, advice, please do not try this at home. I left a couple of days after is when after HR was trying to find out why I'm not coming to the office is when I reached out and told them, oh, by the way, um, I've decided I'm resigning. And that didn't go down too well, especially with my parents, because they were like, why would you leave a very good law firm and just sit at home? What are you doing at home? And I was like, I have no idea, but I will figure it out and I think for me that's when I sat down and I just drew out all my cards and I was like you know what I really need to figure out what I want to do because practice is not what I want to do and I believe that's not going to be the story for a lot of you people because as like I said there's so many people who are passionate about practice and there are people who are passionate about different fields but for me it didn't work out for me because of the mental health issues and the pressure that came with it so i feel like just another form of form of advice for people who are in practice if you feel um there is so much pressure i'm not saying you walk out and write to hr later but i'm saying just sit down and regroup and ask yourself if this is something that you really want to do. Because I always tell people, my mantra, that there is nothing um, worth losing your mental health for because it's extremely important. It should be at the core. Your mental health is at the core. There is nothing that should make you lose your mental health. And Lynn, your, your regrouping has actually led you to the, um, the Kenyan National Commission on Human Rights. So when it comes to finding alternatives while still you know, embracing your passion for the law, it, it, you know, working on the decriminalization of, of attempted suicide at a national level, I think that's a, a pretty darn good example of, of how your passion doesn't have to die uh, with, your, with your current practice. So tell us a, a little bit more about your current work at the commission, if you can. So in terms of mental health, I, I will just start from what I've been up to from all that. So the first thing is that I have been part of the team that assisted to draft the current mental health amendment bill that is currently in parliament, that is being debated uh, in parliament because the current mental health law that we have in Kenya is very outdated and uh, it's, it's, it's a 1989 law. And it is um, a direct, or rather, it's extremely, du it's a duplicate of the 1945 uh, Mental Health Act from the UK. So you can imagine how old that is. Um, it is full of a lot of human rights violations, like involuntary confinement and, and um, uh, substituted decision making, where when somebody has a mental health issue, then somebody else has to make the decisions for them. So there's a lot of um, 
changes that need to be done in this current uh, Mental Health Act that should actually replicate the current status in terms of human rights law uh, that is globally, that should replicate the Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities. Also, the other um, debates that I've been trying to advance is um, the issue of legal capacity. Because if you look at a lot of our laws and statutes in this country, they usually say you can't make decisions when you're mentally, you have a mental health issue, or you can't run for office, or you cannot be employed if you have mental health issues. But what is the test for mental capacity? What is the test? Because if I'm depressed, I have a mental health issue. Does that mean I cannot run for office? Um, if 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 I, I have bipolar disorder and I'm on medication, which enables me to be stable, does that mean I cannot be employed? So I'm really looking into the aspect of legal capacity versus mental capacity. So mental capacity is the ability for you to make a decision. So if you're upset and you cannot make a decision, then it still uh, revolves around your mental capacity. But the fact that your human rights of or right to something is taken away due to the fact or somebody saying you have a mental health issue. That's issues around legal capacity. So those are some of the issues I've been trying to bring up the debate for, which also brought me into... So I raised that issue with the Kenya National Commission on Human Rights, and we have uh, some sort of a forum with various stakeholders. So advancing that argument led, led us to look dig deeper into the law. And another thing we realized is that we have attempted suicide is considered a, a criminal offense here. So that means that cases are not reported in, in, in terms of attempted suicide. So if you don't report the cases, the issues because they stigma. So why don't we report this particular cases? People get help instead of arresting them because the whole idea is instead of people being arrested because of issues on suicide, how do we intervene? what interventions should be there. And an example is two weeks ago, there was a headline in the Kenyan newspaper that said there were 483 cases of reported suicide, attempted suicide cases. And I'm just trying to imagine what is the number of the people who did not report in terms of suicide. So some of these issues are very rampant in society, especially now with COVID, where people are going through a lot of mental turmoil. And suicide for them looks like an option. Instead of you arresting somebody who's trying to attempt suicide at their house, why don't we intervene? How do we get help for them? So that's the kind of work that we're doing at the National Commission, um, Human Rights Commission, Tom. And are you feeling confident, um, you know, with some of the parliamentary uh, bills currently under debate, do you think Kenya is primed for a, a really solid turn in the right direction? Well, that is a that's a two way. I would say um, the beauty about it is that we have started having the conversation around mental health, and I believe that is a step in the right directions. Um, I don't think it is because the problem that we're having, and I think I'll, I'll discuss this as we move on, is that people believe so much in psychiatric care, but sometimes I tell people that psychiatric care is not scalable. Therapy is expensive. How do we deal with issues, um, mental health issues? If we're to go back in time before civilization, when people had problems, they'd talk. People in the community would talk. How would they 
uh, they would express themselves. How would they do this? They would express themselves. They would talk to elders. They would talk to people. And that was very therapeutic for them. But now we always tend to, it's not that psychiatric care is, is wrong. It is very much okay. But I tell people, seeing a therapist is one of the many ways that can help you take care of your mental health but you need to have people aware about it people you can talk to people you can resonate to and the only way this can be done is through creating uh, mental health awareness and the beauty about it when you're talking about the confidence of the parliamentarians um the 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 current senator who's who who, who came up with the bill has a child who has a mental health disorder so of course it's very personal to her um another parliamentarian came out and she said she has bipolar disorder and it's and it, and a lot of people are coming out and they're saying they have issues but they felt that they were scared to do so because there was a lot of discrimination so i believe i'm i'm getting i'm i'm a bit confident because um the law is being taken very positively so let's just see how it goes but i'm just happy that there's already so much conversation around mental health something that wasn't being discussed earlier yeah it's great to hear. I, I like the positivity around it being a win-win. You know, the conversation is happening regardless of whether the, the bill is actually, you know, approved in an unamended form. But um, great to hear and, and, and all the best in, in pushing that forward. Now, as a, as a closing uh, question, I wanted to reference a phrase which was used in your, in your introduction, in your biography, which is trauma-informed. Um, now, I'm going to admit this was even a new phrase to me, and I have done a little bit of research on it myself after you introduced me to it. But for the sake of our listeners, could you explain what trauma-informed means um, in, a, in a working uh, context? And beyond that, what can organizations do to embrace this principle? Thank you very much, Tom. That's a very interesting question. And the issue around trauma-informed came to me, um, or rather is a topic that has been discussed for years. And if you follow um, Oprah Winfrey, and uh, uh, there's Oprah Winfrey and Dr. Bruce. So Oprah Winfrey started a lot of work with Dr. Bruce Perry, who happens to be one of the biggest um, psychiatrists um, in the United States. And he brought out this aspect that sometimes we do not really have our responses are a result of the trauma that we faced. So I'll give an example. Um, let's say I grew up in a very dysfunctional family where my mother was not present all the time. My father has a drinking problem. And whenever he comes home, he's extremely violent. I have myself and I have probably a younger brother. So when he comes home, he's extremely violent and decides um, I'm going to use my wife as a punching bag. And of course, he physically abuses my mother in front of us. And um, the kids are watching. And of course, um, two, two things may happen. While he's doing that, probably... Uh, you get scared and you develop a response to whenever he comes home and beats up your mother, then there's something that you do that will take your mind off that. And maybe sometimes somebody sees that and maybe replicates that later on because that is the only thing that you know. What you don't know is that as a result of that action, then that person becomes traumatized. That's a trauma response. You Because I personally, when somebody 
is violent towards me, maybe the first reaction for me to do is hit them back because I grew up seeing violence. So that's the only way that I can respond. Personally, when I've seen somebody beating somebody up, maybe I would take off or run away or go hide in a corner because I'm scared to be beaten up. That's also a response. So there are various ways somebody can respond to a particular issue, which brings us back to the office setting. Before I get there, so for you to be have experienced trauma or rather the level of trauma can be measured through three different elements distinct ones which can be the nature of the event what was the what, what was the event like that can actually determine the level of your trauma was it extremely um was it extremely abusive was it extremely violent what what determines your trauma level of trauma the second one is the experience and the third one as i spoke is the response that is how you can measure trauma so when it comes to the work environment, we need to understand that everybody in that office has a different background. Your colleague at the corner might be going through a physically or an emotionally abusive relationship. Um, somebody might have been sexually assaulted somewhere. Um, somebody is dealing with um, maybe somebody up and left and there's dealing with abandonment issues. So everybody in that particular office is dealing with a demon that we all do not know, which has resulted to some sort of trauma. So the thing is, you need to understand that both at the organizational level and at the personal level, the, um, there's so much trauma and an organization is not a building, it's a person. So once you start thinking that people have gone through different types of trauma, especially even during this COVID time. You can be in the office, somebody is dealing with the, with the loss of somebody or maybe watched somebody die as a result of losing oxygen because of COVID. That's traumatizing for them. Or somebody has been through COVID and almost died while they were you know, at home taking care of themselves in self-isolation. So there's that space where you need to start accommodating everybody. And, 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 and that's where the element of trauma-informed comes in. So you as an office understand that people have gone through different aspects of life. How do we accommodate this kind of people? That, that, that could be, that's, that's how you can define a trauma-informed approach. And maybe I can proceed and uh, talk about how to create a trauma-informed environment, if that's okay. Yeah, Lynn, I'd be really interested in hearing a bit more because my my instinct reaction is noting how personal trauma can be, how it manifests, how your response manifests. So you talked about scalability earlier, you know, how not all psychiatry is scalable. And my question to you is how do we make a trauma-informed approach scalable if we have an infinite number of, of potential severities of trauma, types of trauma, triggers for trauma, given that each organization employs different people of different backgrounds, of different numbers, of different uh, you know, di uh, ethnicities and so on, mm. or are there kind of standard kind of benchmarks for a trauma-informed environment that allow us to take steps and enact policies which have been shown as able to accommodate a broadest range of trauma uh, experiences as possible without having to customize uh, a, a trauma-informed environment to the absolute specifics of each individual employee because you will never get to know that because not every employee will be ready to talk about their trauma, willing to talk about their trauma, or even aware of their uh, traumatic status or traumatized status. So 
how I love the concept. How, how do we go about it in a pragmatic kind of achievable way? Thank you, Tom. That's a very, very practical question, because you cannot um, you cannot be able to customize an approach for your office or for your organization when it comes to creating a trauma-informed in, in, environment. But the first thing that you need to do is that to and, and enable or rather to ensure that you as an office can create avenues for your staff to request or seek help without feeling guilty or ashamed. So, you know, most of the times um, there's that top-down approach or that level of protocol where I feel that I cannot be able to come out and address um, maybe when I feel like I have a particular issue going on. First of all, it could be probably, um, I'll give an example. Um, it could be sometimes you're overwhelmed or, or you're going through a difficult period, you've lost somebody, you're stressed, or there's so much emotional baggage going on. Is it very hard? Uh, are, are, are my bosses or is management more or less unapproachable for me to reach out and say, I need space to deal with a certain issue because which mentions A, B, C, D, maybe my mental health issues are a problem. Like I'll, I'll give an example. Um, if, if somebody came out the way Naomi Osaka came out and said, oh, you know, I can't be able to do A, B, C, D or I can't play because of my mental health state or how I feel and I feel pressure to do this. And, and of course, people will oblige because, I mean, of course, it was a shock to the tennis guys because they've, they've never really had an experience where somebody has been able to come out so clearly and tell them that I have issues with my mental health and I need space to do this. So that's the fact is create a community in within the office space where I can be able to air my grievances or I can be able to speak without feeling like I'm judged or whatever. And sometimes it can be as, as simple as sending out an, an anonymous surveys or anonymous Google forms. You can send out an anonymous, like you can create an anonymous um, document or a way of people who can reach out and say, I'm having issues with ABCD and probably you as the HR or whatever, you can regroup and find out, okay, people are having issues with one, two, three. How do we address it? But the first step is being approachable. That is extremely um, important. The second thing is also sometimes check-in on them. People might not just open up, but it's important for you to make those regular check-in check-ins on your staff. How are you doing? Is everything okay? How is your mental health? Are you dealing with something? Do you need anything? At least reassure them that there is somebody there for them when they need that help. Because funny enough, when somebody is going through a trauma based situation and sometimes you they might not be able to open up at that particular point in time but once you give them the assurance that you are creating a safe space for them to reach out whenever there's an issue then it becomes very easy for somebody to open up and then you can be able to decide on the kind of intervention that somebody may need because once you create that safe space it's very easy for people to air that out then the third thing which i would say is you should always create like an employee assistance program generally for the office which where um, you have probably therapists or you have persons trained in the office just for purposes of speaking or psychological first aid 
to people in the office because when you have that, especially you extend it to them and their families, it's extremely important because that will also it also shows that despite me being in a working environment, which is extremely formal, my employees do care because sometimes I don't have the strength to go and open up to a human resource or to somebody um, in the office who's been tasked with that. But if I have been assigned, a, there's an assistance program probably with a hospital or a clinic or probably a mental health practitioner who's been trained in the office, the way we used to have peer counselors in school, who has, who's been taught rather the, 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 the issue of privilege where you cannot just go out and talk about people's problems and I can open up and, you know, without fear of being judged because that's what it is and it extends to my family, then that is very important because it enables me to open up and feel that there are people around me who care about me. Tom, the main issue about trauma is just ensuring that somebody feels cared for, loved, and it's a safe space. Because most yeah, most of the time we make our offices such formal spaces where it's difficult for us to air out what's disturbing us. And funny enough, it's where we spend the most time um, during the week. I mean, you spend close to about 40 hours a week in your office, um, I'm an exception to those who are working from home, but still the pressure is the same. But you spend most hours working. Then it's it's really important for you to create that warm space or safe space for people to be able to air out their issues. Um, I don't know if you agree with me with that. No, I absolutely do agree with you. Um, I think it's it's awareness first, then communication, and then action. And there really is no excuse for us as a legal community not to be embracing better practices, policies, and awareness when it comes to, to mental health. This is not a zero-sum game. No one loses when we genuinely embrace um, uh, mental health issues and are willing to help our employees um, overcome these challenges. You know, happier, healthier workers, employees, associates, partners yield better results, better productivity, uh, and, and we can have a better experience working together. I mean, what are we here for? if it isn't to actually enjoy where we spend the vast majority of our time. Chasing that elusive partner money is not worth it to the detriment of everything else. So it's kind of a call to action here is there are firms that are already doing this very well. There are firms that are at the start of their journey. There are firms that have not started on this journey, but there, there is no excuse. There is only benefit. And there, as Lynn has explained on this podcast, there are very achievable simple steps that any organization can take and i implore all organizations to to do this now lynn uh, you and i could no doubt go on for for much longer but that does bring us to uh to time um so a very very warm thank you uh for joining me today um you're very much welcome um tom and i am so excited that um we get to talk about mental health in the legal space. So I feel like it's it's very exciting for me because I'm just waiting to see what happens next. And honestly, awareness, more awareness and awareness. And I will really, whatever it is that I can do to push this agenda forward at Africa Legal, please count on me whenever. 
Thank you. Thank you so much, Lynn. You've already already been a big help um, in the creation of our, our Ubuntu Mental Health Matters program, which obviously this podcast will uh, will become part of as well. So um, also a big thank you to all of our listeners. I hope you've enjoyed uh, joining us today. Um, if you are new to the Africa Legal Podcast, don't forget you can peruse our entire back catalogue on all reputable podcast providers, including SoundCloud, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google podcast and also be sure to visit us at africalegal.com for all the news views and insights that improve your life as a modern african legal practitioner so without further ado this is tom pearson and lynn etamesi signing off for the africa legal podcast mm-hmm.